I am Dr. Earl Reynolds. I am an anthropologist by profession. I'm also skipper of the yacht Phoenix. The yacht Phoenix arrived in Honolulu in May of 1958, having successfully completed a circumnavigation of the world. This is where you... Where I first leave. This is right, the first that's day. Right, where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. All right. This is uh, the log for June the 11th, 1958. It's marked Honolulu, from Honolulu, dash. We didn't know where we were going to end up. Large crowd, many pictures, signs, aloha, sign, give our regrets to the people of the Marshalls. 1800, off on time. Nice breeze. We sailed, I think it was three weeks, to get to the to the edge of the vast area that had been marked off as being out of bounds. And there was no one visibly following us. We could hear on the radio some exchanges, newscasts, for instance, which said this yacht Phoenix is this far out and so on. So when we calculated by our sights that the next day uh, we would enter into the nuclear test zone, why that late that night, a vessel we could see the lights of a vessel from aft on our port side was overtaking us. And we were sailing under rather light air. And this, this vessel came directly upwind of us. And very much as in a sailing race, if you can get upwind of the guy, you can take the wind out of his sail. And the consequence of that was, of course, we, our way in the water was lost. We were slowing down and eventually basically stopped while this large Coast Guard boat, it wasn't the largest boat in the world, but compared to our 50-footer, it was mammoth. And it, it almost ran us down. And they were frantically reversing themselves. They hadn't realized that that procedure of coming from upwind would mean that we would have to halt because we were under wind power alone and we couldn't maneuver. It was very frightening. They were there, they were right up on top of us. You had to look almost straight up and they shouted with a loud hailer down to us, where is your destination? Uh, and I told them that we were on our way to Japan by way of this area. And uh, do you intend to enter the nuclear test zone? And I said, yes, it's, that's our intention. And they just said, thank you. And then they gradually dropped back. We got access to the wind again. And we slowly, at the rate of about three knots, we moved on our way. And uh, that was the only contact we had during the three weeks we were sailing down toward Bikini. It was more than 25 years after his round-the-world cruise when I went to visit Earl Reynolds at his house, more a cabin, nestled in the Santa Cruz, California mountains. He lived there with his second wife, Akia, and their cat. That was 1985, and I hadn't seen Earl in some years. He was seventy-five and still as fit and ornery as I'd remembered. It was autumn. Earl had split wood and built a fire in the fireplace. He began to tell his story from the beginning. I came into the picture because the National Academy of Sciences asked me, as a specialist in the field of physical growth, if I would go to Hiroshima and make a study. At that particular time, of course, I was an associate professor of anthropology at Antioch, I had a life tenure and was pretty well geared up for the rest of my life was be it was going to be basically at the level of professorial level and uh, living on a campus with a pipe 
in a fireplace and having strong opinions, which never went any farther than sitting in front of the fire and, and getting angry about something, but never doing anything about it and drinking the martini and so forth. So uh, I had no idea of going to uh, Hiroshima in the guise of a person who had an unusual interest in peace, but in terms of scientific interest. The intense scientific curiosity stemmed from the fact that this was the first case of the massive exposure of the human population to an excessive amount of radiation. So it was a very great scientific challenge. There was a personal aspect to it, too, a very selfish personal aspect. This was the first study in this field, and I would therefore be the person who would get the, the professional rewards that accrue from making that particular study. Well, I went there for six months, and everything was laid on for us. We went in a very nice big ship, and uh, my wife, my three children, uh, our dog, our automobile, <laughs> all at the taxpayer's expense. <laughs> it, it didn't impress me very much. It seemed, well, you know, doesn't everybody? <laughs> so my attitude is, why not? I'm worth it. When we originally went over to Japan, I was seven years old. I was, we were living on an army base during the occupation, Australian and American occupation. And I was basically just concerned with school and things like that. I see, I was 10. So from 1950 till 1954, I was in Japan as a young teenager. And of course my father was working there, but he didn't talk much shop. It was a bit too grisly, I think, to talk about from the children. In 1950, Tim, Ted, and Jessica, Roll Reynolds' three children, were all living in Hiroshima. Tim, the oldest, stayed only a short time. He chose instead to return to the United States to attend college. Ted and Jessica spent four formative years there. But as they tell that they were pretty typical children, Jessica, at seven the youngest, played with her dolls. Ted, a few years older, played soldier in the abandoned bunkers on the Hiroshima hillsides. I was not that much, I was not at all attuned to Hiroshima, certainly not to its significance, and I don't think that I really knew any of the, uh, any of the survivors. My dad was in touch with the survivors, but only as objects of research, uh, you know, how measuring their heads and taking blood pressure and things like that. And I am very sure that the people who were studying the effects of the atomic bomb Probably one thing that they learned, that the scientists learned very quickly, was you don't start chatting at your cocktail parties with the major's wife about how horrible the destruction from the bomb is. So, first six months went by, and uh, it was obvious that um, this was not a six-month job because there were two things working simultaneously. First, there was the scientific, pure scientific aspect, and then there was the political aspect. And the United States was now embarked on a testing program, a testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. 
But at this particular stage, which was the speaking chronologically the first six months, I was just concerned with getting the statistics together, seeing uh, what kind of uh, analysis program we could do, what would be the best statistical way to approach this problem. How do we get the uh, subjects for measurements to study the physical growth? And uh, what uh, would we do to examine whether the findings that we made could be logically associated with exposure to radiation? So I would just set up the program then. And it took six months, so I, uh, I contacted Antioch College and Fells Research Institute, and they said, well, okay, take another six months. Now I have to backtrack a little bit and retrace the time on a different track. At the same time as I was immersed when Earl talks about very, Hiroshima, very it's a place he knows, situated on the inland sea of Japan, connected by deep water the to the ocean, and already in the 1950s, a busy seaport with many repatriated, unemployed ship and boat builders. It was there to the waterfront and boat builders that Earl would go on the weekends with his dreams. Since high school, when he'd read Joshua Slocum sailing alone around the world, he'd drawn sketches of the sailboat that one day he'd built. I finally got in touch with a boat builder down there, showed him my pictures of my boat, and he just looked at him and his eyes lit up and he said, basically, sure, I can do it, I can make it, didn't, didn't faze him a bit. And so I said, well, heck, I'm going to do it. So he got to work, and I remember one day I went down there and he told me, come, come, I'm going to show you something, and we went down to the waterfront in the dock, and there was a big log floating, tethered to the dock with a rope. And he pointed down there and said, Kiru, Kiru, Kiru. And finally I figured out he meant keel. That's your keel. There's your keel right there in that log. And the hair went up on the back of my neck. I said, my God, I'm in for it. This guy's going to do this thing, you see. After nearly four years in Hiroshima, in 1954, Earl finished his research. The result, presented in an extensive monograph, was one of the first documentations of what today seems also obvious. As Earl summed it up, excessive exposure excessive to radiation exposure is not radiation good for the physical growth of human beings. For the physical growth of human beings. So I finished my job, my scientific job, wrote my monograph, got my letter of commendation, and had an agreement with the Atomic Energy Commission and the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission in Japan that at the expiration of a reasonable number of years, five or six years, I would return to do a follow-up study on the same children whom I'd studied. And so I said, well, I'm going to say around the world, I'll be back to Hiroshima in about five years. And they said, you'll be at the bottom of the Pacific is where you're going to be. <laughs> to be perfectly frank, that's where you're likely to be. But it's in, in the event you do <laughs> come back, well, we'll do the job. So it was kind of left like that. We'd go out to Miyajimaguchi, the boatyard where the boat was built, and we would go there every weekend to see the latest progress on the boat. The boat was completely, it was very much a hands-on boat. These little logs were all sawed right there on the spot by hand. My mother had, at the age of 15, had lost her dad to a canoeing accident. And she had the courage, I realize now, to say, 
if you're going to build a boat, make it big enough for all of us. Because she didn't want another man going out of her life and never coming back. If, if he was going to drown, she wanted to drown with him. And slowly rising there on the beach, there was this skeleton, and then it had sides on, and then it was an actual, actual boat that we were going to sail around the world in. And just about the time that I finished my tenure, after three and a half years, the boat was ready to go. And then I came face to face with, well, am I going to, what am I going to do with this boat? Am I, am I really, is, am I really going to sail it around the world or try? All of my experience had been through the covers of books. And uh, my daughter Jessica was maybe uh, eight years old at that time, and my son Ted was 12 or 13, something like that. And my, my wife Barbara, my first wife Barbara, um, they were all willing to go. They said, okay, we'll go along. 54, I think we launched it. It was a great big ceremony with many people there and my sister in kimono. And when it was finally launched, we had a Shinto priest at the service. My mom, I was supposed to hit the bottle of champagne against the boat. And bottle of champagne on the bow, and my father and I were standing on the deck when that doggone thing went down those greased ways. When they were talking about the name for the boat, and they finally decided to uh, name it Phoenix, or the equivalent Japanese Ho'o Maru. Phoenix ship, that they did say one of the major reasons for it was it was a symbol of Hiroshima rising from the ashes. And the other thing was, I don't know if it was the same time or in a, a similar conversation where uh, my father said something rather snappily about when it said that he, someone said something about Hiroshima being rebuilt and it showed that the A-bomb wasn't so bad after all. And my father said rather snappishly, you may not have noticed that the people who rebuilt Hiroshima were all people who came in from outside, and that the people who were here at the time haven't been good for anything since. After I'd been there about six months, used to go downtown to Hiroshima and do a little shopping and walk, walk around. But during the period, rather early, within the first year, the first Hiroshima day of August the 6th, a kind of a, an embryonic Hiroshima Day was held with the permission of the American authorities where a small group of mourners, family and so forth, went and gathered in Hiroshima at the site of the center, which they call the hypocenter, what you might call the first commemoration of the bombing of Hiroshima was held on August the 6th. One of the speakers was a military officer, American military officer, and his basic position he took is, you folks brought this on yourself, you got nobody to blame but yourself, and if I was asked to do it, I'd do it all over again. And that was a kind of a commemoratory speech that was made in Hiroshima Park. And I thought, well, that's kind of a, didn't care very much for that kind of a speech, because I had mingled somewhat with the Japanese people there. I had a few special friends that I had made, and um, I was beginning to, to have some thoughts about the bombing of Hiroshima. Basically, they were along the lines of, uh, I just don't see why this had to happen. And uh, 
what are we going to do to prevent this from happening again? And way off, far in the corner of my mind, is what, what the devil do we have to have war as an institution for anyway? And I was also getting closer, I think, to the, uh, to the uh, human aspect. These people had suffered, many of them, as completely innocent individuals. Not all of them, in the military sense of the word, there were there was a military garrison, Japanese military garrison there, and that was wiped out, and so on. But there were thousands of children, and I was particularly concerned about children. And I knew that, I don't know, maybe 20,000 children were instantly incinerated. And it seemed to me that that was not a, something that could be thought about with equanimity. And nothing like that, to my knowledge, had ever happened on Earth before where 20,000 children in an instant were removed from the earth. And so the, the human aspect of it gradually impinged on me. Not to the extent I did anything particular about it, but I was worried. My dad was always a person of, um, of determination. Uh, he would set his eyes on a goal, and he would realize that goal, whatever it took. And sometimes it took sacrificing a few people along the way <laughs> in some ways. But as far as being tough, he'd grown up, you know, as a... He grew up in the circus. He grew up in the Depression. His father was a circus performer who died about the time he was born, and his mother was a lapsed nun. He did have a strong feeling of push for what you want and you're as good as anybody. So the poor boy makes good. He's not going to be treated like a poor boy anymore. He had that dignity, and it's the dignity not of somebody who was born to it, but of somebody who had to work for it and is damn sure they're not going to let anybody take it away from him. And uh, so the time came for us to cast off, and uh, we did. And I decided that we would sail uh, very um, leisurely through the inland sea of Japan. And so by easy stages, we worked up the inland sea to port after port. And uh, I remember there were five typhoons that year, and it, the season lasted a lot longer than normal. So we took uh, maybe 10 days and practiced our sailing in the placid waters of the Inland Sea, you see. And we weren't really ready in a lot of ways. The boat wasn't really ready. But we moved aboard and we headed out to sea. And now the, the crew at that moment consisted of my wife and my son and my daughter and uh, three Japanese yachtsmen, young men who had no experience other than on the Inland Seas of Japan. We moved aboard and we headed out to sea. And as we went through the Straits of Naruto, and the incoming tides were meeting the outcoming tides and causing whirlpools, and I was terrified. I was utterly terrified because all I knew about whirlpools is from, I guess, science fiction movies where you're whirled down to your death. And I expected our boat to be caught in one and we'd disappear forever and we'd all die. And um, we didn't. I went down below so I wouldn't see that happening. <laughs> I, I guess my parents just, it never occurred to them to, they never anticipated the fears I would have. And 
as far as the kids were concerned, I did have this much of sensitivity. I thought to myself, I've got to give them something to do that has certain responsibility. And so I appointed Jessica the historian, the historian of the voyage. And she took that, and, and, oh, and the keeper of the cats, because we had a cat on board uh, named Mike. And so the, the keeper of the cats and the historian was her responsibility, and she took it with deadly seriousness. Ted, I appointed, since he had a mathematical turn in mind, I said, you are the navigator. And so he started practicing navigation, studying the stars and locating us everywhere from the Gobi Desert <laughs> to London. My father took the sun sights. I looked up in the tables. I did all the math. I figured out each day a little X on the chart where we were supposed to be. And after 47 days out of sight of land, Molokai in the Hawaiian Islands was just heaved up right when and where I had said it should be. And I, that gave me that wonderful boost of confidence. And from then on, I was a navigator. <laughs> As I was preparing uh, to make my effort to sail across the Pacific uh, to Honolulu as the first stage of this trip around the world, which in the back of my mind I wondered if I really, really do it or not, uh, there was some, some information that's coming in the scientific world that there's some slight uh, indication that the oceans themselves were showing evidence of radioactive materials. And so I, I thought of that as a scientist, and I wrote a friend of mine who was a scientist associated with AEC, and I said, well, I'm, I'm planning to make a trip across the Pacific to Hawaii. How about setting up a scientific study? I'll take sea samples, because I'm going very slowly. And uh, I said, that's an excellent chance. He, and he wrote back very, very enthusiastically. He said, hey, that's a real opportunity. Good, go ahead and make your preparations. So I started making my preparations. And the time came for us to uh, depart, and no further word had come. I contacted him again, and I said, hey, how about this project? And I got a very brief three or four lines long letter saying, we have decided not to undertake this research. And I said, well, all I thought at that time was, well, use your bureaucratic stupidity, you know, so what? But a few months later, while I was sailing, I saw a... Uh, report from the Atomic Energy Commission says, we have no evidence of any radioactivity accruing in this waters of the ocean from fallout. We have no evidence. Earl's the skip, Earl's the captain, and he insisted on his authority, and he was usually right. I think one reason that it worked was he limited this kind of authoritativeness to yacht business. As far as personal lives was concerned and so on, he was not the sort of father who told me what I had to do and not do as, you know, as, his, as his son. But anything that had to do with ship's business and the safety of the ship and how we were going to prepare for something, he was the ultimate authority and let us know it. But... Um when he was really under stress, he would, everything was, you know, he, he tended to feel that people were against him. And there were times when I was the only one that could calm my dad down. Um, when there were 
when there was this icy silence between my parents. And I don't know. There were a lot of things. I don't know why I'm bringing all that up. But um, the trip itself was magnificent. And even though when we got to Hawaii, my mom and I were really not sure we ever wanted to sail again, I'm, especially my mom. She thought, okay, now we've done that, you know. And, you know, it was a rough trip, but I, let's not do that again. Let's settle down. Everywhere we went, she wanted to move ashore and settle down and, you know, let's put down roots. And my dad was always tearing the roots up and always had to keep moving. Um, so we left Hawaii, and I'm sure my mom left with a lot of trepidation. And, but sailing the South Seas was, it's ideal sailing. From Hawaii, on the way around the world, the Phoenix and crew sailed the Pacific, south and then west past Tahiti, Australia, and then the Indian Ocean and past Africa. It was three and a half years later when they arrived in New York. Earl had grown accustomed in a new port to newspapers and radio programs wanting to do interviews. So when we got to New York, uh, I remember there was a rather young guy there that was, um, he was a TV man, and... Uh, he said he wanted to interview me. And I thought, he, well, sure, he, the usual thing, the romance of the family and so forth. Anyway, he double-crossed me because instead of asking me about the trip, he said, President Eisenhower has just said something about the good atom or using the atom for good. And, and I, I said in a kind of a petulant way, I suppose. I don't think there's any thing as a good atom. <laughs> so the atoms aren't good or bad. It's what they're used for. And uh, he said, well, but do you think you know more about radiation than President Eisenhower? And of course, I said, oh, obviously, I know more about radiation. All he knows is what they tell him. <laughs> but I, I've, been exp I've been in it. So I know, naturally, I know more than Eisenhower does it. I was that arrogant type, you know. Still am, I guess. But anyway, it created a, a quite different kind of a response than I'd usually got. Everybody, you know, because then I got, oh, I don't know, several hundred letters, 50-50 saying, right on. And the other 50-50 said, how dare you, you communist? <laughs> this was my first public statement, and I, wouldn't, I didn't make it voluntarily in the sense that I decided to do it. It was pressed out of me, and this was a catalyst. But there'd been another one, and that was, how does it happen that in my all, all of my research that I'm doing, that noth no mention has ever been made of my study. I wrote a fairly definitive monograph, uh, half an inch thick, about effects of radiation on human growth, and there'd been no mention of it in any, any scientific or quasi-scientific literature whatsoever in all these years I've been sailing around. Because, you see... Every time we came to a fairly large place that had a good library, well, let's say I was in South Africa, Cape Town or something, I'd go to the university library and I'd read you know, what was going on in the field. And in a way I was concerned, but I wasn't concerned at the acute level where I'd get up on the stand and say, what happened, you know? But I kept wondering. But I encountered, one of these coincidences, I encountered a woman who had been a secretary at ABCC in Hiroshima, and she said to me, Earl, I'm going to tell you something. She says, that monograph you wrote is sitting in a closet. She says, it's literally been printed, stacks of them, and they're sitting in a closet. Not one of them, she says, has been passed out to anybody. The monograph said, restricted 
to those who have a right to know, or, or words to that effect. There's something like that on the monograph. And so I uh, really became kind of concerned about that. So we left, left this America, sailed back down the coast again, went through the Panama Canal, back into the Pacific, went to the Marquesas, and then headed back up to Honolulu. And technically speaking, the circumnavigation has been completed because I sail from Japan to Honolulu, and then I sail down to Hilo, went around the world, and now I'm making port in Hilo. So it's point by point, I've circumnavigated the world, but of course, I want to do more than that. I want to go back to Japan again. When we arrived here in this harbor... The yacht harbor was abuzz in 1958 when the Phoenix arrived in Honolulu. Another small yacht, the Golden Rule, had arrived some days earlier from California, and the crew on it, all but one Quakers, had announced their intentions to sail into the nuclear test zone near Eniwetok. They would defy an Atomic Energy Commission regulation forbidding their entry. Anyway, I met these people, and uh, they said they were going to take this little cockle shell, and they were going to sail it down in the bikini area, and they were going to pull sails down and, and wait. And I said, wait for what? And they said, well, we're going to do that as a comment on the testing of nuclear weapons. We're going down in the nuclear weapon testing zone, and because we have a concern about that, we're just going to go down there and see what happens. And I said, you're, you're mad. <laughs> and they said, yeah, that's right. We were involved in listening to these men talk, and they were going to leave for the test zone. It was said they were not allowed to leave. Pretense was that they had stated their intention to break a law. Therefore, an injunction was put on them anyway. Refusing to heed the injunction, the crew of the Golden Rule set sail from Hawaii. As they left the harbor, they were followed by a Coast Guard cutter, stopped and returned to port. They were tried and were given nominal sentences, but the boat was impounded. Everything just came together. My dad's studies on radiation. And then there was also the fact that the U.S. government had roped off, arbitrarily called off limits, 390,000 square miles of open ocean to American citizens. And it was the area we had to go directly through to get back to Japan. The appropriate route for a sailboat to sail from Honolulu to Hiroshima goes right through the testing area. We thought about this. It's possible to, you know, to skirt it and so forth, but uh, why should we? Uh, my dad felt kind of, well, they can't do this to us. It was kind of a rebellion thing, I guess, a, a little bit. As far as I knew, we on the Phoenix were the only people in the entire world who were on this site at this time with this knowledge, this concern, and this kind of a boat. Nobody else the world fitted. And I thought to myself, well, that's damn bad luck. <laughs> I, said, I just thought to myself, that's, that's, why me? There had been a letter in the newspaper where someone said even an animal won't take its 
own young into danger. How can these people take their 14-year-old daughter, and Ted would have been 19 then, into danger? And parents were worried about us, and we, my, my sister and I both convinced them that this was something we wanted to do. We weren't being dragged along. We just felt it was. I wrote back and I said, you know, I chose to do this. I want to do this. I agree with my folks and I believe as strongly as they do and this is something I want to do. We weren't being dragged along. We just felt it was, as Jessica said, it's my world too. I want to fight for it. We sailed with fear and yet feeling we were doing the right thing. And every day getting closer to this test zone and my dad with his radio. And um, sometimes dad could only hear the radio when we got far enough out to see, he could only hear it with headphone, uh, earphones. So he would be shouting out to us what the news was and what the headlines were. And you know, another A-bomb's been exploded or H-bomb, whatever it was. 20 hundred by dead reckoning should be over the line or very near it. Boat about one mile to starboard, moving parallel to us. 2200, well inside, still heading general direction of Bikini. W307 still following. And so the next morning, I figured we were inside the nuclear test zone, and we sailed on for a portion of that day till I calculated we were about 40 miles inside. Uh, now remember, this isn't a place that's got a fence around it, and there's no, there's no red streak of paint in the water that lets you know you've crossed into a forbidden zone. You just have to feel it out. But we had no trouble in knowing that we were going to have company because as we moved along on the horizon, I could see several boats, several, not just one. I could see a small flotilla up there waiting, sort of almost like a fence up there, dead ahead, dead ahead. And as we approached them quite close, one of the boats came out and approached us, and then from that boat, they lowered a small boat. Meanwhile, using again a loud hailer, they asked if this was a yacht Phoenix or something to that effect, and, and warned us that we were inside the nuclear test zone, and we said we were aware of that. This is July the 2nd, 0600, well inside the line. The ship Plane Tree pulled up to us and hailed, heave to at 0730 and prepare to be boarded. And, uh... They came alongside, which is pretty dangerous at sea. The two boats crunching together as these guys jumped aboard. It was really dangerous for them. And they were in these white, um, spotless uniforms, armed, uh, sidearms. And so we did take our sails down because we'd already just said we're not, we're not going to do anything violent. And if we're told to stop, we'll stop. Since we're inside the test zone, we've made our point. Jumped aboard and were quite polite, and they, I suppose, introduced themselves, I don't remember, but they put my dad under arrest and said that we needed to go to Kwajalein. And uh, I said, we will do this under protest, which meant that we were not doing it of our own free will. I wanted the record to show that it was an actual arrest at sea. And my dad said that we, were, we would go there under protest, is what, the way he put it. Still July 2nd, got a time signal at 1600. Number 730 U.S. destroyer stayed with us all night. The men of the Coast Guard on guard at all times. Ships sailed under my direction, but 
courses given me by destroyer. Heard on radio, I was to be taken to Honolulu under military guard. All right, the date is uh, July the 3rd of 1958 at 04.30 from the log. Light of blast in the sky, west-southwest, question mark. Orange sky through gaps in the clouds, like a gigantic flashbulb, says Ted. Oval shape, 5 to 15 degrees above the horizon. During the period that uh, we were being brought into Kwajalein, I was uh, steering, I was on watch at night, and there was just a sudden, absolute silence. There was just a sudden uh, flash in the west, a large semicircle, and you know, you have only a few seconds, you know, you, you, I guess you, just, you don't have time to view it several times. So my first memory and description has to stay, you know. It's like a huge flash bulb going off just over the, over the horizon. Just one big flash bulb. You know, large section, I don't know how many degrees in the sky, you know, was, was just light and then dark and that was it. And the next day, no, none of the American radios said anything. The Japanese radio said that uh, their scientists reported that the 20 megaton, the largest H-bomb um, ever yet exploded, had just been exploded by the Americans in the Marshall Islands. My cat is using this thing, news clipping for a bed, and of course hard to see, read through her. Uh, I have the 1959 material here. On July the 4th, 1958, the Phoenix with the Reynolds Talk family and their Japanese yachtsman friend Nick Mikami arrived time. under military guard in Kwajalein. After some days, Earl Reynolds, his wife Barbara, and Jessica, his daughter, were flown by military transport to Honolulu. There, Earl was formally charged. He was released on bail to await trial and prepare his defense. After six months, Earl Reynolds was tried. He was found guilty. His sentence, six months in prison. He appealed. And then the second trial, and the same result, and again an appeal. It had been two years since the original arrest, and Earl Reynolds, free on bail and awaiting the outcome of the new appeal, requested permission to return to Hiroshima with his family. And then you see here's China 1 and 2, and here's Vietnam. Earl and the Phoenix, with the same crew of five that had sailed into the Forbidden Zone, sailed for home. Their course? Directly across the area of ocean that they'd contested, the ban had since been lifted. On July 30th, 1960, the Phoenix arrived in Japan. Earl and the crew tied up at the same dock from which they had departed more than five and a half years earlier. This was the same boat and the same dock, but for the family on board, everything had changed. When I left Hawaii and went back to Japan again, I knew perfectly well that my life was going to be different from now on. I didn't know how. I did think that I could, in Japan, perhaps get back into uh, uh, the role of teaching anthropology. And then when I went to Meiji University 
and made an application. I made the acquaintance of a professor of sociology there, and he finally he, um, he finally educated me. He said, Earl, you're not going to get a job in any university in Japan. He says, your qualifications have nothing to do with it, he said. All that happened is that somebody from the State Department merely got on the telephone and said, he's not uh, one of our more desirable citizens or something of that nature. That's what they said. So I had been blacklisted. Earl Reynolds returned to the United States from Hiroshima in 1970. By then, known as a peace activist, having sailed to Gladivostok, Shanghai, Leningrad, and both South and North Vietnam, he was also now allowed to teach, though still not as an anthropologist, rather in the fledgling discipline, peace studies. He kept us going all the way around. And this one time he said, I am the phoenix. And my mom really <laughs> got her back up about that. You know, we're all in this together. And he said, we, you wouldn't have made it without me. He said, if I hadn't kept us moving, we wouldn't have gotten around the world. And that's true. That's true. And then he, when we got completely around, he said, well, they can't take this away from me. Or us. He may have said us. And Ted, Ted at the time said, who can't? And why would they want to? Or something like that. But it, it occurred to me again, you know, when he lost his memory, I thought, he did lose it. They, I don't know about they, but it did get taken away from him. And that's sad. He doesn't remember it. I last saw Earl in September 1997. I'd gone to California to meet with Jessica. Together we went to the Quaker home where he lived with six other elderly residents. He was in many ways the same man I knew from years before, still wanting to take control of the situation. But now he was reduced to reciting rhymes he'd learned as a child. Then in February 1998, I received an email from Jessica. Earl Reynolds died January 11th in Orange, California. He was 87. I wrote Jessica and Ted sending my condolences. Ted emailed in reply. We wouldn't have wanted Earl to drag on the way he was the last month, but oh, to be able to have him back as he was before. But that's a solution for another sort of universe than this one. On the way back to my sister's home after Earl died, I looked at Jessica and said, well, we're next. And we both, a bit wryly.